Good morning, Harvest City. My name's Kimmy, if you haven't met me before. And today I have the fantastic privilege and honor of continuing in our series on the book of Ephesians. And today is an exciting day because it marks the halfway point in the study of this book. And so far, Paul has been highlighting these gospel foundations to us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Paul has been showing us who God is, what God has done for us, that he sent his son Jesus to earth to die for our sins, and that he was resurrected from the grave so that we could be reconciled to God the Father, that we could find our identity in him, that we could become sons and daughters of him, that our records could be made perfect in Jesus so that our position in Christ could make us secure before God. And today, in Ephesians chapter 4, we are going to see how Paul is going to suddenly shift this narrative from one of who we are in Christ, of who God is and what he's done for us, to this narrative of what the implications are to us because of this, how this should change and transform and impact the way we live our lives as followers of him. But before we look at the text today, I just wanted to share a quick story um, from my life about my first pregnancy with my daughter, Madison. And just to set a little bit of context so that you can have a better of a idea of what this time was like, I just want to say right off the bat, it was not an enjoyable time. It was not enjoyable for me, and it certainly was probably less enjoyable for my husband, Brendan. <laughs> You're laughing because some of you actually knew me during this time, but... Um, you see, the truth is, during this time, I was filled with a lot of anxiety and fear. And to be honest with you, I was a bit of a crazy person during this time. This time was filled with plenty of just, I don't know how to sort of describe it, just to say that it was actually a bit ridiculous. And so one of the things that I would do during this time is that I became this Google fiend. I would just spend hours and hours and hours every day on Google. Googling worst case scenarios and um, kind of all these rare diseases that one might contract while they're pregnant. I just want to say up front, this is not a wise idea. Don't do it. It's not going to help you. But more than just becoming aware of all the possible things that could go wrong, I started to believe that they were going to happen to me. I was thoroughly convinced that I had somehow contracted all these rare diseases in my pregnancy, things that I had not even heard of anyone in my life ever having before. And so my sweet, kind, gracious, loving Brendan would do his best to reassure me that I, in fact, had not create, contracted the most rare disease on planet Earth. And when that wasn't enough, when his reassurance was not enough for me, he would take me to the doctor. And the doctor would try his best to reassure me that I had not contracted these rare diseases. But when that wasn't enough, Brendan had to pay for me to have these laborious medical blood tests, all in an attempt to reassure me that I had not contracted this rare disease, and of course, I hadn't. Probably what was worse for Brendan than that was the fact that I made him partake in a daily activity that he loathes. This activity was an activity called massage. Now, this wasn't just your average, simple, neck, back, shoulders massage. It was much worse than that. <laughs> it's what is called a foot massage. <laughs> but to just paint the picture as to how terribly excruciating this was for Brendan, number one, 
My feet were incredibly swollen. They were about double the width and double the length that they normally are. Don't all look at my feet now, they're perfectly normal. <laughs> Secondly, I'm not going to go into the specifics of this because I would like to retain some of my dignity in this breach. But secondly, they were incredibly dirty for some reason. I think it's because I couldn't find any shoes that could fit me, so I'd walk around barefoot. But my feet were incredibly dirty. Um, And one of my requirements for a foot massage was that he uses cream. So you can just picture it, the dirt, the cream, all mushing into one. It wasn't a fun time. I put this man through a lot. But what was even worse than that, what was even worse than that was my mood swings. I had bad ones. The one night, pregnant Kimmy decided that she was desperately craving an omelet. So kind, gracious, loving Brendan decided that he would cook his beloved pregnant wife this omelet. And so he got out all the ingredients, he got the pan, he got the eggs, he whisked them up, he chopped the ingredients, he added them all together, and he attempted to make an omelet. But this... This did not go well. In fact, it resembled nothing of an omelet at all. So to salvage the situation, he decided he was going to turn this omelet into scrambled eggs. But pregnant Kimmy was having none of it. She did not want scrambled eggs. She wanted an omelet. So what did she do? She marched straight up to the stove, grabbed a pan with a scrambled egg in it, walked up to the bin, opened the lid, and threw pan and all into the bin in a half. And if you're wondering why I'm referring to myself in the third person in the story, it's because I want to create as much distance as I possibly can between pregnant Kimmy and myself. So please don't judge me too harshly. I was a bit crazy during this time. And if you'd looked at me from afar, you would have seen I was married, I was pregnant, I had a job, I was a church leader, and you might have looked at me and thought, wow, she's quite mature. She must live her life in a certain way. She must treat the people in her life in a certain way. But the truth was that I wasn't mature at all, which is proved by my immature response to the omelette scandal. So what does the story have to do with the book of Ephesians? I think for many followers of Jesus today, we find ourselves in that same position. We have all the information knowledge of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us that Paul so beautifully describes in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, but it hasn't informed and impacted and transformed the way we live, the way that Jesus has called us to live as followers of his. Ephesians 1 to 3, in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul is writing to train our hearts and our minds to better understand the gospel so that we can live the life that Jesus has called us to live. The truth is that it is so easy to obtain a whole bunch of information and knowledge about who we are in Christ, but it is so much easier to know about it but not to do anything with it. It's not easy to live out what we say we believe. I can say that I believe in generosity wholeheartedly. I believe in giving to the poor. I believe in sharing with those who are in need. But if I am surrounded by people who are in need and I do nothing to help them with the resources that I have available to me, whether it be money or time or any other thing, and I just hoard those things to myself, then can I really say that my my life reflects this belief that I have in being generous? And I think it can be the same in our relationship with God. 
we believe that God has saved us, that he has done a powerful thing in our lives, that he's impacted and transformed us forever. But we're filled with hate and anger and jealousy and unforgiveness. Are our lives clearly reflecting the belief that we have in who God is and what he's done for us? Jesus is calling us to build the foundations of our lives on the gospel and on who he says he is. We are in him. But how do we go from a place of knowing the information, knowing what God is saying about us, to actually living that out? Because it's a lot easier to say and a lot harder to do. When I read through this chapter that we're about to read through in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm extremely challenged. I'm challenged by the way that I live and how so much of my life is still immature. It's not easy. It's not easy for any of us because we're human. We're weak. We're infallible. None of us can live this life that Jesus has called to on our own. We need something supernatural to empower us. But thankfully, God the Father, His Son Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Gospel, is supernatural enough to found our entire lives on, our marriages, our relationships, our parenting, our friendships, our careers, and all of our lives on. It's supernatural enough to empower us to live the way that Jesus has called us as his followers to live. The more we allow God access into our lives to shape and transform who we are, to give access to the Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to live this way, the more we are empowered to live this way. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16, or you can follow on the screen behind me. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended? He came to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's quite a mouthful. I think there's like three preachers in one there. But um, Paul starts this chapter by writing in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling you have received. 
And I think often for many of us, at least I know this is true of myself, when a preacher or a minister or a pastor talks about their calling, how God has called them to preach the gospel, preach the good news, preach the good news of Jesus, we can often feel like, wow, you know, I haven't felt the specific calling from God. For some of us, we may have felt the specific calling in a job vocation, to be an architect, a teacher, a doctor, a nurse. But for some of us, we just haven't felt like we've received the specific calling in God. And so we can often feel like we are less. We are less than other people. We are less, we are not as called as other people. But what Paul is showing us in the scripture is that as a follower of Jesus, we have all been called by God. There is a fundamental calling in God. It's a call to be his disciple. It's a call to be his son or his daughter. It's a call to know him and to serve him and to seek him. It's a call to be reconciled to him and to have relationship with him. Paul is saying that in light of everything that has happened, in light of everything that he has revealed to us in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he is now urging us because of all of that to live a life that is worthy of our calling that we receive from Jesus. And what's interesting is that word, that word worthy here in this text, in its original Greek, is this word axios. And axios, when you um, translate it directly, means the word scale. So what Paul is saying to us is he's saying, um, everything that you are in Christ and all that Christ has done for you, weigh it up against how you are living. Paul is calling us to measure our lives against who God says we are. And I just want to stop for a minute and I, I want to say, God has already said who we are. If we are followers of Jesus, he has said that we are homely, holy, blameless, <laughs> Homely, um, holy, blameless, perfect before him. We get Jesus' perfect record. We, our position is secure. And so he's not urging us to live this life worthy of the calling to somehow gain our position before God. No, we already have that. Jesus has already spoken that over us. But what he's calling us to is a life of fulfillment and joy and peace and love and hope because that is what Jesus wants to bring to our lives. Do you have that sense of call? Do you believe that you are called by God into relationship with him, that he wants to have a relationship with you and that he's calling you to himself? So how are we called to live? I think Paul gives us a pretty good description of this in the rest of Ephesians chapter four. Um, and the first thing that we see that he calls us to is he calls us to a life. The scripture calls us, Jesus calls us, to a life of humility. A mature church is a church full of people that are marked by their humility. Humility is an attitude that informs our actions. It's an awareness that all we have, all we are, all our gifts, everything we own is because of him. It's because of God. And so there's no room for us to be boasting or be proud of anything because it is all Jesus. Tim Keller says this about humility. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility is not about putting yourself down, of calling yourself ugly names. God is not up in heaven speaking negative things over you and calling you names. No, because of our position in Christ, we are beautiful before him. He says in Song of Songs that we are altogether beauty and that they are beautiful and that there is no flaw in us because of Jesus. True humility is not about putting yourself down or thinking less of yourself. 
It's about thinking of yourself less. In order to grow in humility, it's going to require the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And it's also going to require us to renounce some things that perhaps have taken root in our lives. Maybe, like me, it's things like selfishness or self-centeredness. Or maybe it's needing and desiring the approval of man. Needing the approval of man, the applause, the recognition, and the praise of man. The gospel is so countercultural to how the world works. The world will say to you, promote yourself. Put yourself up on a pedestal. Make yourself the most important person in the room. The world will say that to be valued, you need to be praised and applauded and recognized. But we see that the way of Jesus is so different. In Philippians 2, verse 3 to 8, Paul writes this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As followers of Jesus, we don't need to take recognition and praise and applause for ourselves. We can give those things to Jesus because he is worthy of them. He is worthy of all the honor and the glory and the praise. We don't need those things to give us value in our lives because Jesus has already shown us how valuable we are to him, that he would be prepared to humble himself in that way and to die the death that we should have died on our behalf. We are empowered to live this way ourselves because he is our perfect example. He did it so he can empower us to live this way. The person who had the least reason to be humble on this earth is our perfect example of humility. Two, we see that we are called to be gentle. Gentleness is all about being nurturing towards one another, to valuing, it's about valuing other people's concerns and their feelings. And it's about being gracious and merciful and compassionate when they make a mistake. What do we have to renounce in our lives in order to be gentle? We have to renounce things like harshness, bitterness, anger, rage, sometimes even violence. I think gentleness is so important in all contexts of our lives, whether it be at work or at home or at church or in our careers, at school, on the roads, in the traffic, in the shopping malls. It's so important. Because being harsh and not being gentle can cause so much damage and pain to people in ways that we can't even imagine. I'm sure for every person in this room, they have felt the impact on their life of a lack of gentleness. When someone's been really harsh with you, or when someone's perhaps even been physically violent with you. But the truth is, not only have we been affected by it, we've also affected others. It's also a lack of gentleness has also moved through our own lives. The world is in desperate need of more gentleness. But the good news for us is that the Bible shows us that there is hope, that we can learn gentleness from Jesus. 
It says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 29, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus shows his strength and gentleness. Jesus was the most powerful man on earth when he was on earth. He was the most powerful man, and yet he was treated harshly and violently on the cross. And what was his response? His response was gentleness. Why? He didn't have to. Why? Because he loved us so dearly. What causes you or I to be harsh towards others, to treat them harshly? And how have you been affected by somebody else's harshness? God has spoken a better word over us, one where we don't have to treat people that way because we can learn from him how to be gentle, and one where we don't have to live in hurt because of somebody else's lack of gentleness, but we can come to him and be healed and restored because he has said that our identity is in him and not in the words or the actions of others. The next thing we see in the scripture is that we are called to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Patient means to be long-suffering towards aggravating people. One uh, theologian describes it this way. He says, putting up with one another in love and tolerating one another's annoyances and difficulties out of love. So the biggest problem with this idea is that sometimes people can be really annoying. They can be really aggravating and annoying to us. Why? Because they believe different things to what we believe. They have different opinions. They have different ways of living out their lives. And very often, this comes and clashes against what we believe. And it causes us to become impatient and dismissive of them. And we don't treat them in love. How can we be more patient towards other people so that we can love them well? How do we produce this fruit of the Spirit called patience in our lives? The simple answer to that question is that we can't. We can't. We don't have anything within us that can create patience. I know I certainly don't. I'm a very impatient person. But we can call on the Holy Spirit to come and who is within us already to come and produce and grow this fruit of patience in our lives. Having patience means that when other people make mistakes, we don't write them off. When somebody comes and they hurt or they sin or they offend us over and over and over again, we don't write them off. Why? Because we have done that to others and to Jesus over and over again, and he never writes us off. Patient, tolerant, forgiving love allows people to fail, learn, and develop. This is the counter-cultural way of Jesus. We see in Matthew 18, 21, that the disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, how many times must I forgive a brother that sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus answers them and he says, 77 times. In other accounts of this gospel, Jesus actually says 77 times seven times. I don't even know how many times that is, but it seems shocking because our culture tells us that if somebody does you wrong, they're gone, they're out. But that is not the way of Jesus. Paul says that we should bear with one another in love. That means to put up with one another in love. In 4 Peter um, verse 8, it says that love covers a multitude of sins. 
In Proverbs 10 verse 12, it says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Why is Paul urging us to live this way? Because it's the way that Jesus lived and treated us. If you read through the accounts of the gospel and you see how annoying the disciples were, what Jesus had to put up with, they disowned him, they hurt him, they betrayed him, they did many, many things to him and he never gave up on them and he never gives up on us. He says to us, I give you a new commandment to love one another the way that I have loved you. When we can love people in this way, I really believe that powerful things can happen. We see in the scripture that we are called to live in unity. And to be honest with you, the world is kind of in a crisis in this regard at the moment. It's nation against nation, world leader against world leader, family against another family member, friends against friends. Everything has become so polarized and the differences between us have just become more and more extreme. But we see that Paul shows us another way in Ephesians 4 verse 3 to 6. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Jesus is calling us to be united in him. We are not united by our fashion choices, our food choices, by our race, by our income brackets. We're not um, united through our marital statuses, but we're united in Christ and because of Christ. This church family can be united despite the differences between us because we believe in one message, one Lord, one God, one spirit, and that spirit is powerful enough to bring unity amongst us. The scripture also shows us that we are called to serve one another in love in this church community and in the world by using the gifts that God has given to us. Ephesians 4, 7 to 8 says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Paul is saying here that not only hath each one of us as followers of Jesus been redeemed and have um, gotten salvation through Jesus and our identity in him, but that God has also apportioned grace to us. This isn't just saving grace but it is also a ministering grace. God has given each one of us a ministering grace to use our gifts to partner with him in building the city and building his kingdom and advancing his kingdom in Durban so that we can see the church built up, encouraged and strengthened and to see people around us come to know Jesus. We would love every single person in this church to know their, their gift and their calling in God and to be equipped and encouraged to use it so that they can make the difference in the world that God has called them to make. Lastly, we see that the scripture has called us to maturity. And I think maturity can be quite a strange word. It's like we don't really quite know when it is that we become mature. Is it when we lose our virginity? Is it when we get married and have a child? Is it when we have our first job and get our first paycheck? What exactly is the exact moment when we become mature? And spiritual maturity, I think, can be even a tougher nut to crack. Like, when does one become spiritually mature? Is it the person who knows the Bible the best? We see that the Pharisees knew the Bible off by heart, and yet Jesus wasn't so impressed with them. 
Is it the person that prays for at least two hours every day? Is it the person that gives the most money to the poor? What makes us spiritually mature? This passage shows us that spiritual spiritual maturity is fundamentally about becoming like Jesus, attaining to the full measure of Christ. This means to become like Jesus. The more we become like Jesus, the more we live like Jesus lived. The more we treat people the way that Jesus treated people. The more we care for people the way Jesus cared for people. And the more we can live out our calling in a a manner that is worthy of the calling we have received from him. The measurement of maturity is how alike to Jesus we are. The more we become like Jesus, the more mature we are. So how do we become more like Jesus? Through relationship with him through spending time with him, through growing in intimacy in our relationship with him, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit can empower us to live the life that Jesus has called us to live. And the scripture also shows us that um, God has given the church gifts of leadership to help us grow and mature in our faith. He calls it the, the gifts of leadership he mentions are the apostle, the prophet, the teacher, the pastor, and the evangelist. I'm not going to go into all of those um, gifts of leadership, but there is a preach on our website that goes into it if you are interested to know more, or you can chat to Grant. But um, we also see that the scripture shows us that to be spiritually mature also will require us to be theologically mature. When we um, are kids, we're very mature, uh, immature, sorry. When we are kids, we're very immature. But as we grow up in our life, we become more and more mature. And it's the same when we become a born-again believer. At first, when we become a follower of Jesus, no one's expecting us to know everything about Scripture and the Bible and who God is and all of his ways. But what the Scripture is calling us to is to grow in our spirit, uh, theo- oh, sorry, tongue twister, is to grow in our theological maturity, to grow in it, start somewhere. We, we can't know everything at, at, all at once, but we can start somewhere. We can ask the Holy Spirit to put a desire within us to have a vision in our hearts to know God's word. Why is Paul calling us to a theological maturity? It says there in the scripture that the, dece- the devil is out to deceive us, that he's crafty, that he wants to trick us. Not only the devil, but also other people. There's a million things that are going to come our way that are going to challenge who God is, his ways, and who we are in him. And and we need to be grounded and rooted in Christ in order to stand against those things, in order not to be this boat on a stormy sea just being tossed to and fro. We are so blessed with the resources at our disposal, Kindle, bookstores, books, podcasts, teachings, trainings. There's so many things that enable us to grow in this way and to learn more about God and his word. Lastly, spiritual maturity requires relational maturity. It says in Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. This means speaking the truth to one another in love. It's taking that theological depth that we have from our knowledge of God's word and speaking it into one another's lives. But let's be honest, who loves criticism? Who wants to have 
their flaws or their errors or their faults point out to them. I mean, I personally love it. I would love four or five of you to come up here right now and maybe you can actually, before I end this preach, give me a few crits. Tell me how I'm doing. Point out a few faults in what I've said so far. That is rhetorical. Please don't do that. (laughs) But um, no one likes that. We don't like criticism. I don't think it's very natural to like criticism, so I don't feel bad about it. But when people come to you and they say to you, hey, Shane, do you have a minute? There's just something I need to talk to you about. You're like, actually, no, I don't have a minute. Do you have a minute? Because there's actually something that I want to talk to you about, Shane. Defensiveness. That's how we respond to the truth. Because as a culture... We don't even know what is true anymore. And we certainly don't know how to share it. We, have, um, we live in a world of fake news. I'm sure everybody here has heard about Trump and the fake news media. We are in a post-truth era. The word post-truth was the word of the year in 2016. Post-truth means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional feeling and belief. Scary. We have, become t- we have begun talking about our truth and alternative facts and objective facts go right out the window. So how are we supposed to know what the truth is anymore? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the person that we go to to find truth because Jesus is our greatest example of someone who spoke the truth and love to others. We see in the Bible the story of where Jesus has this encounter with a woman who is caught in adultery. What does he say to her? How does he treat her? Does he say to her, oh, those Pharisees, what idiots. You just, you do. You be your authentic self. You live life the way you want to live. Does he say that? He doesn't. He says to her, go and sin no more. But he also says to her, I don't condemn you. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of love, where we speak to one another in truth, but we do it with love. When we speak the truth to one another without love, that's just judgment. Nobody wants to be judged. Let's not do that to people. But when we love one another without truth, that love becomes insincere. Jesus truthed people. Do you have people that you can open your life up to and be vulnerable with and allow to speak truth and love into you, to build you up and to mature you? We don't want to hurt and embarrass people. That's not the point. The point of truth is not to bring judgment and condemnation. The point of truth is to bring love. And um, I think we've all been there in that moment where somebody has spoken the truth to us and it might have been very true, but it was the most hurtful thing that we can recall from our, our life so far. Maybe it's a church that's done it to you or a fellow follower of Christ or, or whoever it is. I remember once, uh, it was about 10 years ago, I went to this church leadership conference in Brazil and um, this one night this preacher was preaching And he just stops in the middle of his preach and he points at me, which was horrifying in itself. But he then starts to describe to everyone exactly what I'm wearing. Another horrifying thing. But then he takes it one step further and he says, I've had a prophetic word for you. And it's about this sin issue in your life. He names the sin issue. 
And he says, God is calling you to change. It was true. I can't fault him on that. It was true. It was 100% true what he was saying. But did he do it in love? I don't think so. (laughs) Because all I felt was embarrassed and humiliated and judged and condemned. That is not the point of truth. Everything we do as followers of Jesus is about love and should be done in love. And it's the same when it comes to speaking truth into one another's lives. We want to be the kind of church that has what Jesus has in mind. We want to live the lives that he has called us to live, to bring him glory and honor. And because we know that it is the best that he has for us to live in that way. We want to be a church that is unified, serving one another, sharing our gifts with one another. We want to be a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus, to become humble and gentle and patient with one another, bearing with one another in love. We want to be a church that has Jesus' values at heart, that is impacted and informed and transformed in the way we live because of who he is, what he's done, and who we are in him. Please can we stand? This morning, I really felt that God was saying that he has called us to himself, that for each one of us, it says in the Bible that God wishes that all men be saved. God's wish is that each of us would come to know the call that he has placed over our lives. And a lot of what I said today can be very overwhelming as we think about all the areas that maybe we don't feel we are living up to. But that is not what God is wanting today. God is wanting us to set us free from some of the areas in our life where, um, that are holding us captive, that are keeping us from being free in Him and living a life that He has called us to live. Maybe He's highlighted an area in your life today that He wants to bring His transformation and power to, that He wants to bring His Holy Spirit to renew you and transform you. It's not about doing good things or being moral. It's about placing ourselves before God, surrendering ourselves to Him and asking Him to help change and equip us. We can't do this on our own. Can I just call Candace and Shane up to share something quickly? This morning while we were praying, I just felt that God was saying that there's a bunch of us here, maybe all of us, (laughs) that have believed lies about ourselves, about God, and about how God feels towards us. And I just felt that he wanted to show us those lies very clearly, show us what the truth is about what he feels about about us, about who he is and how much he loves us. Um, Yesterday I heard this like gut-wrenching meow at home. (laughs) And for those of you who know me, you know how much I love cats. But um, my wife's cat was stuck up in the tree. And um, I couldn't see this jolly thing. It was so high up. It was dark. And, um, but what had happened was I think the, the dogs chased this cat up into the tree. And, um, and now it was stuck up there. And I, I would imagine that it's been there for a few hours. And um, now I'm trying to get this, calling this cat to come down. But we don't really have much of a great relationship. Um, so the cat wasn't coming to me. So, um, but it looked down and it saw these twigs kind of that it must have used to climb up. But now, 
couldn't come down because there was no pathway for it to come down because all it saw was just these twigs. So I climbed up this tree as best I could and removed um, all these twigs. So there was now a way for this jolly cat to come down. Um, but it still wouldn't come down. So it would like go on its little paws and then come back up and then go back down and then, and then come back up until I put my arm there. And then when I put my arm there, like a, within seconds, sorry, I just want to put this down. So, so, so I put my arm there to make almost like a bridge for this cat to come down into the next branch and then come down. <laughs> um, and as I put my arm there, this jolly cat ripped into my arm and blood and all sorts of stuff there. Not, a, not, not that bad, but, but there was blood. Um, <laughs> but it sounds cool, hey. <laughs> and, um, why, why do I share that story? I share that story because perhaps maybe you've got yourself into a place where, where you, you feel, um, you, there's too many things in your life which, which are stopping you from being used by God, by maturing in God, by, by being worthy of His love, being worthy of acceptance. Maybe you feel like you've done too many things, like God would never call me, God would never use me. Um, I don't know if I can grow and mature like that, like, like, like Kimmy's talking about. You just feel like those are just huge obstacles. And actually what I want to say this morning is that actually God has removed those obstacles by what Jesus has done on the cross for you. He's made a way. He's put Himself on the cross just like I put my arm there for that jolly cat to come across, that you can grow, that you can mature, that you can be reconciled to God, not because of any efforts of your own, because believe me, <laughs> the obstacles are too big. But Jesus has made a way for us to mature, to grow, to be reconciled to him. You see, just like I have some scars on my arm, yeah, they're really bad, it's disgusting, so I wore long sleeves because there's just blood everywhere. <laughs> no, I'm lying. But, but there are some scratches. Jesus bears the scars on his body of making a way for you to come to him, to grow in him, to be reconciled to him. To, so as Kimmy was, um, was sharing, actually I have faith this morning that God wants to do something inside of us to, to, to just realize actually it's not about us, it's not about the stuff that we do, but it's about the stuff that has been done for us. And as we focus on him, he begins to do such a work inside of us that we grow and mature and... Um, and, and don't rely on yourself and your record. Rely on what Jesus has done for you. He's made a way for us. So Nate's going to take us away in worship. While, while we think about that and think about what Kimmy said. Thanks. <laughs> 